Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, you may have noticed over here to your right-hand side, all of these different cards are tapestry of kindness. So this uh, past uh, summer, one of the challenges I had was that 2016 would be a summer of kindness. And what we would do is we were challenging people to do an act of kindness uh, each day. And so this is what God allowed us to be a part of in doing. Now, when this first happened, there were a couple people that came up to me. I won't mention names. But they came up and they said, um, it's never going to happen. Guess what? They're wrong. They're wrong. And so... Uh, <clears throat> And again, this wasn't for us to be like, oh, look, we're a kind church. It was to be able to say, hey, how can we be challenged to go out and show God's kindness to uh, people in our community? And so a uh, great job of doing that. Now, this doesn't mean that now that summer is over, you don't have to be kind anymore, okay? Uh, you don't, you know, go, hey, I put my quota in, I'm done now. Uh, what I would encourage you to do is to keep this going, uh, even with fall, and uh, so we'd encourage you to do that. One way that you can actually so show a practical kindness is by saying, hey, I want to actually say I'm in when it comes to being a part of uh, the JAR uh, Community Church. And so next week, I'll be teaching what we call our partner class, in which we will be uh, inviting people to come. If you're like, hey, you know what? Um, I've thought about it, but I've never really made a commitment to say this is my church family and I want to partner with them. And so next week, uh, I'd invite any of you who are not a partner to come and be a part of that. Um, it will be right after the second celebration and will be done by 2 o'clock. So if you DVR your games, you'll not get too far off uh, to be able to do that. But uh, lunch and child care is provided, and I hope that many of you uh, will come and do that. Well, let's, uh, oh, and if you want to sign up for that, you can either do so by going to the resource table or on our app, the JAR app, if you scroll down to a little box that says sign up, if you click on that, then it'll take you right to uh, the partner class. And if you're like, it gets boring during the teaching, you can go check out the app and sign up for that, okay? So let's pray and uh, then we'll jump in. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this church. And God, I thank you for each person who is here. God, I thank you for the fact that you used us this summer to show your kindness to other people. And God, I pray that that ripple effect would continue through the fall. God, whatever you're doing in this place to move in people's lives to help them to get beyond themselves and to truly serve you. God, would you keep on doing that? And we ask, God, that more of your grace and more of your spirit to come and to guide us. And God, now as I uh, teach on what it means to be a risk taker, I ask that you would help us to understand that even when we're scared or we're fearful about taking risk for our faith, that you'll give us the strength to be able to do that. 
So God, equip us now, teach us of what it means to be able to be light to our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, anyone who's disconnected from you and your church. We love you, Lord, and we want to hear from you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning with this statement, nothing compares to a great story. You get two people together, and immediately what happens is they start telling stories. You take a grandchild and a grandma or a grandpa, and they sit on their lap, and immediately stories start being shared. Or if you think about guys who go out fishing, they'll start telling fish stories about how big that fish actually was, you know. Or you take two strangers who are in an airport, and they don't know each other at all, but, you know, the plane got delayed, and immediately stories uh, start to be shared. I mean, if I were to share with you a story this morning about a mariachi band and a fifth of tequila and a cat, I guarantee some of you want to know that story, don't you? I don't have a story like that, but, man, that'd be a great story, wouldn't it, you know? You know, at a very early age, what we begin to understand is that stories are like really, really important and they impact our lives and how they shape us. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'm going to share with you three stories and I want to see if you can guess what the title of these stories are. Okay, so here's the first one. Once there was a girl who was forced to do hard labor for a wicked stepmother. One night, her fairy godmother magically created a beautiful ball gown and glass slippers for her. She went to the ball, met the prince, and lived happily ever after. And that great story is what? Look at that. Man, you guys are on it this morning. All right, here's the next one. Once upon a time, there was a little girl who wandered into a house in a woods. She ate some porridge that was in the house, sat in the chairs, and finally fell asleep in the smallest one's bed. She was awakened by the family of three, and when she saw them, she was so frightened that she ran all the way home. And the name of that story is? Look at that. You guys are just, you're brilliant. You're just brilliant. That's what you are. (laughs) Okay, here's the last one. One day, there were three pork brothers that got together. Each built a house, a different material house. One was built with straw, one with twigs, and one with bricks. Along came a big bad villain and blew down the straw and the twig house. But when he tried to blow down the brick house, he failed. And that story is called? You guys are just literary geniuses. That's what you are. Now, at an early age, what we find is that all of us learn about stories and we love stories stories. And we realize how powerful a story can be. So today what I want to do is I want to share with you the greatest story ever told. God's story. His great and grand story. As we begin a brand new series that we're calling Risk. How we take risk to invest in other people's lives. And there'll be five movements that are in this story. 
And the first one starts in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and this is the story of creation. So in your fill-in-the-blank, if you want to, you can just fill that in real quick, and it's creation. Or you can go into your app, and you can uh, do it there as well. So the first movement is creation. In Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, God establishes what is going to be created. And in verse 1 of the Bible, it says this, In the beginning, God. So whose story is it? It's God's story. It's not anybody else's story. It's God's story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. In other words, there was utter chaos. There was nothingness. It was empty. It was void. There was nothing. And to make matters worse then, it says this, darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the only glimmer of hope that we see is next when it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then in verse 3, it says this, And God said, Let there be what? Light. Let there be light. He looks into this chaotic mess, and God says, I'm going to bring light to it. He looks into this chaos, and he says, I'm going to take some order. Folks, there is power in a spoken word. God speaks the word and things are created. And I want you to know this morning that there is power in your spoken words. And when you speak, you either speak light or you speak darkness. You speak despair or you speak hope. Well, God continues to create. And he creates and he creates and he creates. And after each time that he creates on a particular day, he turns back and he says, this is good. This is very good. And then on day six, he comes to the pinnacle. He comes to his masterpiece. He creates humankind in his own image. And in chapter 2, verse 7, it says this. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. This is where God actually gets on the ground and he becomes an artist in his studio. He takes some of the dirt and he begins to start forming it in such a a way, a miraculous way, that he creates a human being and then he breathes life into them. So God not only speaks something into existence, he also then forms them with his hand. A world that was formless and empty and void now becomes shaped and it's filled with his creation. And this first movement is this creation. And it was good. It was very good. And God takes the man. And he says it's not good for him to be alone. And so then he creates a companion, a partner, a helper, and he creates woman. And he places both of them into this amazing garden where there is peace and harmony and all is well and all is good. But it didn't last. The second movement of God's story is called the fall. Human beings fall away from God. 
You see, there was this snake, this serpent, and it represented evil or Satan himself. And this serpent did not like the fact that everything was good. He didn't want good to exist anymore. And the serpent wanted everything to go back to chaos and nothingness and emptiness. And this serpent began to go after the woman. He begins to tell her lies and says, you should eat this fruit. And the woman says, no, 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 no. God said he forbid it that we would do this. He said, we can't eat of this. And the serpent says, God's holding you back. He's holding you back. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, the serpent says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was there. I mean, what husband ever turns down free food, right? Like, if it's there, he's eating. And so he does. And he takes some, and he eats. But when that happens, everything begins to change. God's goodness is refused. And his relationship with this man and woman that he had formed and connected with, all of a sudden, it becomes broken and fractured. And the man and the woman, they knew it. Their eyes become open for the very first time and they realize that they're naked. And the woman is like, I'm naked. This is not cool. And the man is like, you're naked. This is so cool. (laughs) But deep down inside of them, they start experiencing things that they had not experienced before. They start feeling shame and they start feeling anxiety and fear. And they knew that the goodness of God that had been given to them was now broken and fractured. And so what do they do? They do what all human beings do. They try to cover it up. And they go and they get some fig leaves and they try to cover themselves up. And then they play hide and seek with God. Have you ever played hide and seek with God before? Because the thing is, is that we always think we have good hiding spots. But he always finds us. Because he's a loving God that way. He never wants us to live in despair or hiding from a relationship with him. And the scripture says that they hide and then all of a sudden they're walk, they hear God walking in the quiet of the morning. And as they're walking, as God is walking in the morning, God simply asks one simple question. Where are you? You who I created in my image, where are you? Where, where's the goodness that I've given to you? Where are you? And then God does two things. 
He commands in that moment that he's going to take care of evil once and for all. And then he goes and he makes clothes for this man and this woman. It's very interesting. Up until this point, nothing has died in his story. Everything has been full of life, full of goodness. But at this particular point, God takes an animal and kills it, that it's sacrificed so that the sin that the man and the woman had committed would no longer be on their record. They could be clean. And that death of that animal was only a precursor of what the ultimate sacrifice would be when Jesus himself would come. And it's amazing to me that God could have given up on this story But he loves people so much. He desires relationship with them so much that he makes them clothes. And he gives goodness back to them even when they had been even when he had been rejected. So creation, fall, and then the next movement is struggle. After the fall, there's this struggle that ensues. A brother kills a brother, a group of people decide to build a great big tower because they don't want to be connected to God. They want to be their own people now. Many of them start wanting to be their own gods. And so God determines that, well, it doesn't happen with one person, so what I'll do is I'll get connected with a group of people. Maybe groupthink will be better. And so he goes ahead and he gets this group of people and he names names them Israel. Now it's interesting in the Hebrew, Israel means this, to struggle with. So he names this group of people that he's going to struggle with them. And they're going to struggle with being obedient to him. And they say, we want to be our own God. We want to create our own nation. We want to have a king like everybody else. You're not enough, God. We want to be our own. And this whole group of people, they have this identity crisis. They're not sure who they are, and so they become enslaved, and then they're freed. But then they become enslaved again. They come to power. They enslave other people. And then finally, they forget about God. They no longer put Him first, and they find themselves in exile, away from everything that God had given to them. More pain. More captivity. More silence. Creation, fall, struggle. But God looks down on this world and He says, I've got another part of the story to write. And He he starts putting together a plan. And it's a big word, but it's a simple word when you break it down. And He creates a redemptive plan. Redemption comes. You ever redeem a coupon before? You go up to the line, you say, hey, I got a dollar off on toilet paper. They're like, okay. And they redeem it. They take it from you and they give you something less than what you deserve. You should pay the full price, but it doesn't happen that way. And when redemption comes, God says it's not just one time, but it's once 
and for all. And it's not just for this one group of people called Israel, but it's for the entire human race that from this time on I will save them from their sin and their evil and their error. And again, not just his chosen people, but now he chooses all people. And he says, all of them, if they turn to my son, there'll be an exchange, a redemption that will take place. I'll take all of your sins, all of the sins of the world, and I'll take that huge, gigantic pile of sin, and I'll exchange that, and I'll place it on my one and only son. I'll put all of it on to him. But then you'll be set free. You'll have nothing left. And he does it. John chapter 1. I love this in the message. It says this. The word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. What neighborhood did he move into? Earth. Planet Earth. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind of glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true and from start to finish. Folks, when Jesus centered himself into this place, he entered with a life of goodness that he would actually say, even though this story right now looks like it's all filled with struggle, I'm going to leave heaven to come to earth. I'm going to move into the neighborhood and I'm going to start changing the way that people understand that heaven really could come to earth. And Jesus proclaimed the message that his father had given him. But you know, people can talk. Talk is cheap, right? And Jesus said, I'm not just going to talk what this message is. I'm actually going to act upon it. And he went to a cross on Golgotha. And he took on that whole pile of sin of the world on himself. But three days later, he rose again. 500 people actually witnessed him as the resurrected Christ. And he invited people into the last part of the story, which is God's grand story, which is restoration. Any of you ever watch HGTV? Oh, women, come on. All right. I watch it, and I'm a guy, so. And have you ever watched, there's one that uh, they have this uh, house where they walk in, and it's not like the house that they want, but then all of a sudden they start restoring it. They do everything. And by the end of it, it's like this totally different thing. And they say, now we're going to give the reveal. Now, this is what I don't understand about my wife. She will start the show, go do 500 things, and right when it gets to the reveal, I'll get ready to change the channel. And she's like, don't change it! And you know why? Because she wants to see the restoration. God invites you and I to participate in restoration for other people's lives. That's what He intended. So when the first group of followers came to Jesus, the scripture says that they actually turned the world upside down. And as they walked into the world, 
And as they met Christ and they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, they actually became the hands and the feet of Jesus in this world. And the first church was formed and they took on a name. Do you know what the name of the first church was? A group of people and they were called The Way. And the reason that they called them The Way is because they said, when you see their lives, you'll see the way of God. You'll see the way that they act is the good news that Jesus gave to us. And one of these particular guys, a guy by the name of Paul, who wrote close to half of the New Testament, he writes what a restored life actually looks like when it takes place and becomes a part of the way. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says this, Therefore, if, is, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. It doesn't say that the new is finished. It just says that the new is here. And we as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, that he's actually asking you now, will you partner with me to be a part of some restoration stories, of some revealing stories? Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He never counts your sins against you when you turned in because he's already piled it on to Jesus himself. And he is committed to us this message of reconciliation, we are therefore Christ ambassadors. So the next time a person comes up to you, if you're a Christ follower, and they say, what's your occupation? Ambassador. You're like, to where? To the God of heaven. Pretty important job, dude, you know. But that's who you are. God doesn't stand on a, or sit on a chair in heaven. He actually wants to involve you in a part of, of this process. He wants you to be ambassadors for him. And so that's the story. The grand story of God. Creation, fall, struggle, redemption, restoration. And what's so amazing to me is that God invites us to be a part of the story. God's story, folks, is your story. God's story is my story. And, and he's simply wanting us to take a risk to be able to reach out to other people to help them know that it can be a part of their story too because it already is if they'll just turn to him. Now, my creation story began on June 16, 1971. I'm 35 years old now. I'm not good at math, but I'm 35 years old. And I was born to John and Sis Bunch, and I came home to a place called a parsonage. That is a house that a church owns. We didn't own the house, the church did. And that's where I walked in. My dad was a pastor, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And for seven years, after my parents were married, 
they tried to have children on their own. And they were not able to have biological children. And finally the doctors came and said, you'll never have a biological child. And they went through the pain, the devastation of that. Some of you know what that's like. And so my parents adopted a little boy and they adopted a little girl. And in 1970, they had decided that this was it. We were a family of four and no more. And that was it. And my mom was not feeling very well and she goes to the doctor one day and she says, I think I have a tumor. You are looking right now at the largest human tumor. Now, my mom calls me a miracle. My dad calls me an accident. So I figure I'm somewhere in between. And my early childhood was great. I mean, we were Poe. You know what Poe means? You can't afford the O-R at the end for poor. So we were just Poe. And we lived right at the kind of poverty line. But, you know, our family was awesome, and it just didn't seem to bother anything. But then around the age of 10, my mom was diagnosed with depression, and she started dealing with heavy depression, where for a couple years, the only thing I remember is her kind of being in her room with a window air conditioning and would come out every once in a while to help with preparing food or something like that. And I don't think my dad really knew exactly how to handle that, and so he just started working more and more and more because he's working for God, and so he put all of his energy and effort into the church. And I struggled a great deal as a child with anxiety because I had this fear that if mom's there and dad's working all the time, I, maybe one day that would be the norm and, and I'd be alone. And so I always wanted to be around my parents. I kind of had this separation anxiety because Everything was unhealthy during that preteen time, and so I wanted to be with them. And so I worried a lot. And I knew there was something about my family system that wasn't healthy, but I, I, I was 10 years old, I was 11 years old, I was 12 years old. I didn't, I didn't know what it meant. So I began to start thinking inside that you better please your parents. Like you better perform, you better do things well. And any time that I didn't, I worried that maybe... I wasn't quite enough, and maybe something would happen. Well, during this time, there was a man in our church who started to invest in my life. His name is Larry. And he had four girls and no boys. And so he just kind of adopted me as a, a son that he never had. He was a really good Christian man who did his best to live for Christ in the church. And before long, during that preteen when my world was kind of messed up, he, he started 
taking me to football games, and we would go golfing together. And they had a swimming pool. And he would invite me over in the summer to swim with his family. And when you're a preteen boy, and you have four girls that are swimming in a pool, it's not a bad place to be. And so I spent a lot of my preteen in Gas City, Indiana. And I looked up to Larry a lot. But this was the thing. I never really told Larry about my fall. I never talked to him about my struggle. But one day I remember going to him and I just said, you know, Larry, I'm a PK, I'm a pastor's kid. And I don't understand it, but I, I just feel alone a lot. And I'll never forget, he responded by saying, you know, Chris, being a PK doesn't take away loneliness. A relationship with Jesus Christ will take away loneliness. Because if you have a relationship with him, no matter where you're at, no matter what's going on in your world, Jesus will be right beside you. He'll be your Emmanuel, meaning God with us, God with me. Now, my parents are great. Both of them had told me that many, many times growing up. But when you're a preteen, it's like you need to hear something other than your parents, other than the preacher. You need to hear it from someone else. And when Larry shared that with me, it was like all of a sudden there was something in me that I understood. And at the age of 12, I got baptized and I had this relationship with God. And I remember taking my Bible and I opened it up and I started reading at the beginning because that's why you read a book. You start at the very beginning. And my dad and no one else told me where I should read or how I should read. And I got to chapter 5. And all of a sudden I read this. So-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so. And they begat begot and begoot begoot. And all of a sudden I'm like, forget that. Leave it there. And quite honestly, from that time until I was 22 years old, the Bible was never a part of my reading process. But do you know what I became? Churchified. You know what churchified means? Churchified is where all of a sudden the church becomes your God. I became Full of the church. And so, Wednesday night Bible study, Thursday night choir practice, Sunday night youth group, acolyte. Some of you are like, what did he just say? Uh, that's the person that, if you've ever seen the little kids that light the candles, you know, up at the front. I used to do that because I wanted to be churchified. And I did all of these things. But this was the issue, folks. No one ever talked to me, Larry did, no one else did. No one ever talked to me about the fact that maybe one of the most important things you could do as a Christ follower is to actually get out of the four walls of the church and actually tell your story. And so I never told anybody my story. And I only hung out with good Christian kids. And I really didn't hang out with anyone else because those were the enemies. And those were the people that I would be concerned about. Well, what's interesting, even in the midst of all of this, 
I went through a huge rebellion. I've shared that before and I won't today in college. But God put someone in my life, a girl named Jennifer Terry, who later became my wife. And she actually helped me to be restored once again into God's story, into His wonderful, glorious story. And what was so weird is at the age of 22, I followed in my father's footsteps and I actually became a pastor. Scary thought, Chris Bunch, 22. I still feel bad for that church many times. You think you got it bad. They got the worst of the version, you know. But I'll tell you what. I was good at being a churchified pastor. I knew the names of every person in the church because we only had 60. And I knew them all. And I went to the nursing home. I went to the hospital. I had coffee and tea visits. I mean, I loved on these people. I knew these people. But we never really communicated with anyone outside the four walls. We were a churchified group. And anyone that was outside the church, we always just kind of thought, boy, they're really big-time, horrible sinners. Not those of us in the church, but just those outside. And we began to see that they were evil and sinful and messed up people, not like the holy rollers that were inside the place. So you might imagine that we rarely, if ever, had visitors People who were far from God never came to our church. People who were broken, hurting, they never came there. We never had EGRs. You know what EGR stands for? Extra grace required. You have some people in your life that are like that, aren't they? If you don't know somebody, you're it. (laughs) Extra grace required people. We were a church of 60 people, and we're all churchified. Fast forward three years later. I'm sitting on my porch. If any of you have ever watched Andy Griffith's show before, it's kind of the town that I pastored in. And there were about 1,500 people. Everybody knew each other, and I'm sitting on my porch, and all of a sudden, down the road comes this ambulance and police officer. Now, I already knew where they were going to go because they always went to that house, two doors down. I didn't know the people. I never talked to the people because we had to stay away from those kind of people. But they all went down to this house. And these were the people whose kids played Black Sabbath and Ozzy Osbourne all night long. And these were the kids that would go over to the church parking lot and would start smoking cigarettes and then would leave their butts there. Not butts, buds, okay? And then we would have to clean them up. But you know what we did with those kids? We kicked them out. We kicked them out. We had a restraining order back in the day, away from someone coming to the church. So I sat there and I watched all of this happen. And 20 years later, I'm not proud of it, but this is what I did. I watched it all happen. I turned around. I opened the door to the front. I walked in, and I remember consciously thinking, it's not my problem. They're messed up. 
they're far from God. The next morning, I woke up. I get a phone call from one of the neighbors, and they said, Maria, who lives two doors down, I didn't even know her name, who lives two doors down, her husband, Ivan, shot himself last night, and he died. And again, I'm not proud of this, but she said, can you go down and help them? I was like, no, I got a busy day today. I remember going to my study, and I got my little candle, got my Bible, got ready to start praying. And I was accosted by the presence of God, not audibly, but in my spirit, saying, what are you doing? Why are you trying to be so spiritual when just two doors down, these people's world is turned upside down. And so I was so convicted, I walked out of the front door onto the porch, took a left, two doors down, and I walked inside this house. And have you ever walked into a place before where the grief is so thick that there's no visible sign of fog, but it just feels like fog? I remember walking in, and I remember looking at that couch, and there's Maria, and her seven-year-old son, Tony. And they are bawling. And the only thing I knew to do was to go over and I put my arms out. And I started hugging these people that I didn't even know. And within time, tears started falling from my eyes as well. Well, I did Ivan's funeral. And on that particular day, the church was packed. There were so many people. There were these people that were tatted up all up and down their arms, these women that had makeup that was like caked on their face. There was the smell of cigarette smell all through the church. And when all of this was transpiring, I'm thinking to myself, what has happened to the church? Every rebellious kid in town was there. And it was the largest crowd that we had ever had in three years, and it was at a funeral. Well, after the funeral, I kept investing in Maria's life, and the church changed, and we started investing outside. And in the midst of all of that, six months later, Maria gave her life to Christ and was baptized along with her three kids. It was the first person, though, folks, The first person ever in my life that I had helped to understand God's story. A story that deals with creation and the fall and struggle and redemption and restoration. The problem that I understood was there was something lost in translation that I thought God's story was just my story. That it was for me and everybody in the church. And soon I learned that God's story is not just his story, but it's my story, it's your story. It's every person's story. But how do we go about telling the story? We've got to take a risk. You've got to take a risk. And it begins, first of all, with creation. 
that every time you see another human being, they are created in the image of God. That's who their creator is. And you've got to discover their story. The problem for many of us is that when we deal with other people, we don't start with creation. We start with the fall. Genesis chapter 3. We start by looking at people and going, they are so messed up. Look at all the bad stuff in their life. Look at all the negative stuff in their life. And when we do this, we never see other people as friends. We see them as enemies. So when someone falls, we don't take risks. But the whole point of being a risk taker for Jesus Christ is that when people fall, you're the first one there to try to hold on to whatever is crumbling apart. And allow them to know that God is always with them. Next is struggle. Allow someone to share their brokenness with you. Their pain. And then don't try to judge them. Don't try to fix whatever their struggles are. Just be present with them. Now, you'll say that, oh yeah, that's my goal, but this is what happens. Someone lands in our life who stands in front of us who has the disease of alcoholism and pretty soon we can't handle it anymore and so what we simply do is we say this, just stop doing it. Just stop drinking. That never helps the alcoholic, I can tell you. If they could have stopped they would have already done so. And what happens is whether it's alcohol or it's something else, we see some type of behavior and then we cut the person off of our life. And yet if a Christ follower is actually going to be with someone, they have to learn to simply sit with people, not trying to change them, but simply sitting with them, being in their presence, entering in and sitting long enough that you begin to understand what is beneath the surface. Because every single struggle that a person has, all you see is the surface. And you have to be patient enough to get underneath that. And if you can do that, and you start seeing the good in the person, and you know their story, and you see that you can be fully present with them, it changes the way that you start praying for people like that. You connect with them. You invite them. There's a connection. The problem with many people in the church is that we want to see people saved. And the way we want to do it is by doing what I call Jesus bomb. Boom! Jesus bomb. And when the Jesus bomb comes, what happens is if they don't change the way that we think they should, we walk away. Folks, taking a Jesus bomb and throwing it somewhere and doing a whole bunch of Jesus stuff is not taking a risk. But the risk is when you're with people and you're praying in power saying, God, teach me how to understand your redemption story enough that I can explain it to a way that they will understand. Help me to take a risk to see and know that you're present and this person can have a relationship with you. You know, one of the reasons why I love baptism so much here at the jar is not solely just for the person who's getting baptized. But after the baptism is over, as I talk to the family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, they'll come up to me and they'll be like, I've been praying for that person for eight years. I've been 
walking with that person for six months. And then finally, I shared some good news. And God's story like broke into their lives. And they said, yes. Folks, people want to hear God's story. People want to be able to share their own story. And people want you to be able to share your story of how God restored your life. People want to know how God met you when you were messed up. They want to know how God met you when you were in pain. How God met you when you were lonely. How God met you when you were in an addiction. How God met you in your sin. And then they want to know how God restored you so that you can be a part of restoring other lives. Folks, God's story is my story. God's story is your story. God's story is every person's story. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. So this is how we're going to close. I'd like you to pull out this card right here that was in your program. And uh, if you didn't get one, just raise your hand and one of our hospitality folks will get that to you. Just raise your hand. They'll get it to you real quick. Don't be embarrassed. Just raise your hand. And at the beginning of the year, here's one up here. At the beginning of the year, we talked about this uh, concept called Circle of Three, I called it. And basically what it is, is that you think of three people who are disconnected from Christ or the church, and then you invest in their lives. And you commit to kind of doing three things. That you pray daily for them, that you connect weekly, and then you invite them regularly. And so... This could be a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, someone, anyone who's disconnected from Christ or the church. Well, when we did this in January, I was amazed at how many people jumped in and they were a part of this. But then as the year went on, some people kind of just, you know, got to summer, I guess. But some people took this challenge and they really went to town. And so what I'd like you to do right now is to look at Amy's story and how she took Circle of Three and the impact that it made in two people's lives. Let's look at the side screen. I am Erin McDaniel. I'm Amy Everhart. I'm Jenna Easton. I teach third grade. And I am now the special ed coordinator, and I teach sixth grade math. So um, the JAR had this initiative um, called the Circle of Three, and it was to identify three people in your life that you knew um, needed God in their life. And I know we've talked a lot just about how to invite them, and there's risk involved. Um, you, you don't know how they're going to respond to being invited. She'd asked me several times and that kind of stuff, and it, like she said, it was always, oh, I want to do it, but I've got this going on, or oh, it's so busy. And so um, finally I just realized, you know, it is an important part of my life, and I want to find that for Logan and I. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to come. And then that first week, Chris kind of started a new message, um, and it just 
really fit perfectly with where I was in my life at that point. So she um, did ask me quite a few times, and it wasn't that I was putting her off. I just, in my world of myself and being selfish, I felt like I was really busy. But I would tell her, I was like, I really do want to go. I just have to find the week to go. So then um, once I found the week to go, Erin and I went together, and that Sunday was great. I felt like once I started going, I noticed that other things in my life I almost felt at peace with. I started taking the message and thinking about it more through the week and that kind of stuff. And so I started forgiving and um, just, I, like I said, I noticed that my life was becoming a little more peaceful and I was just very content and a lot happier and that kind of stuff with um, different things going on in my life. It's one of the first few services I came to Chris was preaching and he had said, you know, that it's not about being at church every Sunday and that was something that really hit with me because, um, it is about having God in your life and so, that was something that I needed to go back in mind. Okay, that's Amy's story. My question for you is who is your Aaron and who is your Jenna? Who are the people in your life that God is counting on you to invest in them? For Amy, it was two co-workers that became friends, fellow teachers that she connected with, but who is it for you? And what I want to do is I want to give you a moment to actually ask God, God, who are these people that you want me to invest in? Some of you, you know who they are right now. And they need to be people that you connect with weekly. Like Aunt Clara, who's in you know, South Dakota, who's mean and nasty, and she's far from God. Well, Aunt Clara, who's in South Dakota, someone in South Dakota needs to deal with her mean and nastiness, okay? But God's asking you to just take a risk to think of a few names that you could start praying for, connecting with, and inviting. So I'd like to give you just one minute before we close out for you to ask God. And if you get one name, great. If you get two, fine. If you don't, that's okay too. You can do that this week. But I want to give you a minute to do that. So go ahead.
Well, I filled mine out in the first celebration, and one of the things I noticed was that one of the people, when I started the first of the year, um, actually got baptized this spring. And I was thinking, oh, God, who, who else do you want? And so I got another name, put another name there. And so my challenge to you is to don't just throw this away, but to take some time this week to think about that and then email me that person's name. You don't have to give me their whole name, just their name, first name. And I'll commit this week to praying for every single one of those names. And as a church, as a staff of the church, we'll commit to praying for those as well. And whose story would be next because you chose to take a risk? So I'm going to invite our uh, prayer team to come up right now, and I'd invite you to stand for closing prayer. And if you'd like prayer for anything, these folks would love to pray with you. So uh, come on up, and, and they'll be up here to pray with you. And let's take a risk this week, and let's live out and be guided by God's story. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for seeing us. And God, we thank you for creating us in your image. God, we're not perfect. There's not a perfect story here. There's stories here that are filled with conflicts and struggles but they're filled with restoration and hope. And God, we thank you so much for using us and inviting us to invest in three people. And even if we just have one now or two, God, I pray that this week that you would help us to hear from you so that we would invest in the weeks and months to come as we take risks and pray and connect and invite. God, it's my prayer that more and more people would come to you through the lives of these individuals that are here today, those who are Christ followers, willing to take risks. Because, God, your ways truly are the best ways. God, help us to be open to be used by you. And may we risk. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you're on teardown, if you can come up here to the stage first, Jennifer Welch is going to be here to kind of direct you. Otherwise, have a great week. Know that you're loved in this place.